Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm in our DC studio today, and I'm joined in studio by my colleague and good friend, our legal eagle at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Gracie. It is so great to have you back up here with us. Oh, well, I love DC. I, I, I was so great, grateful that I had a chance to drive you around the greater DC area, having been lost by ways several times. Yes, we got lost the several times. In the studio. But thankfully, we got here just ahead of our very distinguished guests that we have with us today in the studio. But before I introduce them, I'd like to remind our listeners that if you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network in D.C. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe. You can go to our webpage at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, and it will direct you to our free subscriptions. Uh, so today, Andrea, we have two very distinguished gentlemen joining us uh, in studio. And the first gentleman is Mr. Tom, I'm sorry, Dr. Tom Farr, who's the president of the Religious Freedom Institute, a nonprofit that works to advance religious freedom. He has a long and distinguished career. He served for 28 years in the U.S. Army and U.S. Foreign Service. In 1999, he became the first director of the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. He, among other things, he serves as a consultant to the U.S. Catholic Bishops Committee on International, International Justice and Peace. Welcome, Dr. Farr. Thanks, Gracie. Great to be here. No, it's our pleasure. And he brought a friend with him, also from the Religious Freedom Institute, Ismael Royer. Hello, Ismael. Hello. Wait, let me introduce you. He is the director of the Islam and Religious Freedom Action Team for the Religious Freedom Institute. He converted to Islam in 1992. And he spent over a decade working at nonprofit Islamic organizations, and he's been widely published, and we are very fortunate to have him here with us today. Thank you. So the Religious Freedom Institute, to give a little background to our listeners, works to address religious freedom issues before multilateral inst uh, institutions like the Organization of American States, in testimony to U.S. Congress, in briefs to the Supreme Court and uh, also in the State Department, if I'm, if I'm not wrong about that. But why don't we let um, Dr. Farr, I think of you as Tom, I'm sorry. I no, keep, <laughs> I keep messing that. up your title. <laughs> Maybe I can All call you Tom. work to get a PhD. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us about, you know what, actually, before we talk, if you don't mind, before we talk about the Religious Freedom Institute, maybe you could define for us religious freedom. Now that maybe sounds a little bit basic, but uh, perhaps people's idea of religious freedom has become a little cramped over mm -hmm. the last few, I don't know, decades. Sure. And maybe a, a, your um, expansive, much more true definition will, will help us to get started. Right. Well, this isn't going to sound very sophisticated, but it is basic. Religious freedom is the right to believe or not. But if you believe in order to um, uh, carry out your beliefs, mm -hmm. uh, you have the right to be a member of a religious community, do the things that religious communities do, do the things that religious people do, worship, follow your conscience, and things like this. Sometimes this is pretty interior stuff, private stuff. It doesn't necessarily have public implications. So the second part of this definition is the right to, to take your religious beliefs in the public life of your country as a citizen 
not as an absolute right. You can't kill people because you think your religion tells you to do it. But you can and you must uh, be a, uh, a steward of your religious beliefs, at least in the American system, in public life. The founders set the system up, the free exercise of religion. That's a very, very useful and, I think, communicative phrase. Exercise your religion. That's not just, you know, Pentecostals singing loud in church. Mm-hmm. They do that. So some Catholics do too. Uh, not many. <laughs> we do in Miami. Do. <laughs> do they? Okay. Well, I do, um, only if the organ plays very loudly. <laughs> have you ever read the book, Why Catholics Can't Sing? Let's just, we'll leave that out of this. Oh, not in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, it means taking what you believe out into the, uh, into the public square, into the life of your country as a citizen. That's the way the founders wanted it. And that's what we're not doing. We'll get into that. Well, Tom, I was in in preparation for our conversation today. I was looking through some of the great documents of Vatican II and, and the Declaration on Religious Freedom has a really helpful definition for Catholics as well to understand the importance of religious freedom in our faith. And I'm just going to read from it because I thought it was brilliant. And um, the the fathers of the council write, religious freedom has to do with immunity from coercion in civil society. Therefore, it leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies towards the true religion and towards the one church of Christ. And there's kind of twofold in there. And, and I think what we're going to be speaking a lot about is the first part, and that's being free from coercion of civil society. And that deals with oftentimes the state, the formal state, and the culture in which people are living. And, and as we kind of delve deeper into our conversation today, we can talk about that twofold freedom from coercion, whether it's the formal government or the people that you're living, you know, amongst. That's right, uh, Andrea. Thank you for that. It, and really, it's both parts of what you read from, from Dignitatis. Uh, religious freedom itself is an immunity from coercion, but it's also freedom for the church to make its claims. And what's revolutionary about, uh, and I mean that in a, in a temporal sense, Dignitatis, it is a development of doctrine. It's not a turning over mm-hmm. of doctrine. That's not what I mean. It's revolutionary in the sense that it's saying to all of us as Catholics that we have, but every human being has a right to immunity from coercion by other human beings and by the state. What we have, and so we we want to protect that for all human beings and all religious communities. It goes on to say, in effect, that what we demand for Catholics is libertas ecclesiae, the freedom of the church to make its claims publicly in society, claims about what justice is, claims about what a human being is, claims about what truth is publicly, not just within our masses. But here's the real, in my view, revolutionary part of this. It says every other religious group in a given society has that right as well. And we as Catholics defend it. So an immunity from coercion does not mean syncretism or indifferentism. It doesn't mean that it, all religions are the same or that there's only, there are many ways to Christ. We don't believe that. That's our claim. Others get to make their claims too. And enjoy the immunity from coercion. Things work better, and I'll just end with this point. I keep coming back to the founders. I think this is what they meant. They weren't Catholics, by the way. There weren't many Catholics involved in the uh, the construction of our First Amendment. And it may be that their leanings were maybe anti-Catholic, no? Some of them Some were. Of them. 
very anti-Catholic, but I would say today, in my view, Catholics defend what the founders meant pretty well, and indeed, I would say better than most others. So immunity from coercion, the freedom of all religious groups and individuals, of course, within limits. You didn't read this part, uh, Andrea, but uh, it, it goes on to say this is not an unlimited mm-hmm. right. It, it, it can be limited by the demands of public order and public morality. The, nar- the more narrow and cramped definition of religious freedom that's become um, maybe more uh, widespread in the United States and in other Western societies is what has been described re- uh, freedom to worship, correct? Correct. correct. And, 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 I, and I tend to think that most people who aren't delving deeply into these things and don't go on your website and attend your great conferences – May might be thinking of it this way. Might th- might be thinking that religious freedom means that you wake up on a Sunday or on a Saturday, depending on your day of worship, and you have the freedom to make your way down to your place of worship and you and worship behind closed doors. But the other, the the more important part of it, or the more expansive part of it that we started talking about, is that ability to exercise. So, what does that exercise look like? Like, where what parts of society do you think that religious freedom as um, as a as a human right allows human beings in a proper free society to ex- to exercise their freedom well the, the two are not really separate they go together you know if you're going to uh, if you're going to exercise your religion it usually does begin with worship it begins with sure. these interior things it, it 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 would be odd to be exercising religion if you <laughs> never went to mass or you never went to the synagogue or to a mosque sure. uh, so you do have these beliefs uh, and and the obligations of conscience come out of these beliefs but the point of your the point you're making if i understand it gracie is that today many people want to stop with freedom of worship uh, and indeed, the prior administration made a big deal of this. That is to say, uh, it's fine to do whatever you want to do behind your uh, uh, church walls or behind the walls of your house of worship. Just don't bring it out into the public. Everybody can support that. But not only is that contrary to Dignitatis Humanae, it's contrary to the American system. And we'll talk about, I'm sure in a few minutes, religious freedom doesn't work Uh, in all of its benefits if it doesn't give the right of religious individuals to go into the public lives of their countries as free and equal citizens. That's where you really get the temporal payoff of religious freedom. As Catholics, we want to talk quite rightly about salvation and souls, and we care about that. In addition to that, however, we want to be members of of our societies. For me as a physician, for me as a physician, I find this very troubling, the, the, the lack of acceptance of bringing one's religious faith into public life. For me, public life might be, might be what I'm doing now, but it's also my life as a doctor. And uh, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of angry uh, responses when I, when I try to speak as a pro-life physician. And they say, you're bringing religion into medicine, and that's an improper place. Well, I know Ismail wants to to jump in here, but let me just respond to that point. It's a very good one. The First Amendment has been turned on its head, Gracie, Mm -hmm. when they say that any citizen of this country, and it's not just Christians or Catholics, it's anybody else, cannot bring their religious beliefs into what they do for a living, into their politics, into their public lives as citizens. So whether you're a doctor or a veterinarian or a ditch digger, mm-hmm. 
you have mm-hmm. a right, and, and I would argue as a, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to bring to all those around you. Well, and for many of choice. us in the, in the faith, our work is sanctifying. We sanctify our work. We express our faith through everything we do, and it isn't limited to a priest or a religious. It's in the consultation room. It's in the courtroom, and it's living that uh, coherency that I think is, is something that you can't detach from faith. Now, Ismail, you um, come from a, a different, you're living a different faith tradition. And I wonder, um, I, I am very ignorant <laughs> on many things. But one of them that I'm willing to admit is I'm very ignorant on the perspective of um, Islam and religious freedom. And I know that you have written a lot and are working within your faith community. And perhaps you could share with us and with your listeners kind of what you've been doing and the receptivity that people within uh, the tradition, the Islamic tradition, have had to what you're teaching. Um, well, it's interesting that the term um, religious freedom, you mentioned um, that people have different definitions and different understandings of what it means. Um, the term religious freedom, it, um, if we're speaking more broadly in the in the Muslim world and specifically the Arab-speaking world, Arabic-speaking world, the term translates to mean something along the lines of syncretism or um, free thinking um, in the negative sense. Hmm. Um, so, uh, therefore, there. <clears throat> many refutations that have been put out by Islamic scholars of this uh, concept, where in reality it's kind of a straw man. They're they're actually uh, arguing against something that um, religious freedom is actually not. So what mm. what what I find is that um, Muslims often, uh, especially you know those who don't live in the United States or or in the Western world, Muslims outside of the Western world get um, are surprised to find that what when we say religious freedom, what we really mean is um, maximum uh, space for religion in public and minimal um, interference by the government. And because uh, governmental authorities in the Muslim world have essentially totally co-opted um, uh, religion, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that means um, uh, uh, restrict it and control it, when they, when they understand what we mean by religious freedom, then they, um, then they like it. And um, so uh, then when it comes to treatment of, um, of minorities, um, this, is, this is a very important issue because um, there has been a drastic um, – there has been a drastic um, – change in the Muslim world uh, in terms of treatment of minorities with the shift from the imperial model where you had autonomous communities living under um, uh, living, living under far-flung empires to the shift to the nation state, which, um, which sort of resulted in um, an increase in the size of the state and therefore a greater oppression of not only Muslims who want to practice their religion, but also non-Muslim um, minorities. Uh, which is not to say that um, the situation of minorities was uh, utopian or or um, something similar to the United States under um, these uh, different em- empires. For example, most recently the the Ottoman Empire. Um, you know, uh, but it is to say that during in those m- many people have observed correctly that at least in classical older Ottoman Empire, um, the uh, cl- older Ottoman Empire, they um, allowed a certain level of autonomy for. Um, for minorities. And not only that, there are many, many different um, uh, re- resources within um, uh, classical Islam that supports 
allowing um, uh, a, a measure of religious freedom, not perhaps what we would um, consider sufficient today, um, and that those need to be developed further. But there are foundational um, sources within Islam that would support um, uh, greater freedom for um, for religious minorities. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder how how do you present your idea of religious freedom to a, a traditionalist uh, right. or, or what, a typical mindset? So um, one, one of the very important errors that is, um, uh, you know, that, that many Muslims um, are, are, are laboring under today in the Muslim world is that somehow or another it's Christians that are, um, um, that are um, let's say, a threat to the practice of of, um, of of Muslims, to the religious practice of Muslims, in reality, what what um, I think, and we see this a lot in um, we see this in Pakistan, for example, where um, there's a great deal of persecution of uh, Christian minorities um, by not just the, uh, the the government really. In this case, it's the tail it's the tail wagging the dog. And in, in, in mm-hmm. the case of Pakistan, it's it's actually mobs that drive um, this persecution and that force the government. Uh, uh-huh. I like mean, sweet gov- Asya Bibi. Right? As with Asya Bibi, I mean, go- government mm-hmm. officials have been assassinated for trying to mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. defend her. Uh, defend her, you know. That's and right. So um, now that's not to say that the entire population is um, you know is doing this. It's it's a certain segment of the population, but this segment of the population somehow has identified Christians as being um, in opposition to Islam. But in reality, um, Christians in in Pakistan are not um, um, agitating or pushing against um, Islam. In reality, um, it's uh, it's the trend towards um, uh, irreligion and secularism Hmm. that is the actual problem, which is not to say that there should be mobs against people who advocate for secularism. But uh, what I like to do is I like to say that... um, there's a the Prophet Muhammad. He uh, said, uh, he said, um, uh, we are the people of the book. He was talking about himself, and it is upon the people of the book to help the people of the book. So the the people of the book is a term meaning Muslims, Christians, and Jews. That's right. And so um, uh, there is a um, uh, there is a principle that that we should help those who are religious and who believe against um, uh, attempts to um, infringe on, on that. And also another thing the prophet said, um, the, the believers are the defenders of the, um, uh, of the places of worship of the people of the book, which is in very much in contrast when you take that and you say, okay, well, now in Pakistan, they, they're rioting and burning down a, a church because there's a, a rumor that someone, um, someone has insulted the prophet. And so these are... Um, these are the type of resources where we need to go back and remind the Muslims and say, um, believers are allies of um, believers in religion are allies of one another in um, supporting um, uh, in supporting a, 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 a society where um, everyone can uh, pursue the religion, their religion, and all the good that comes from that with the, the hospitals and the mm-hmm. um, you know and the charity and uh, the education. Um, and as religion, sh- we've seen in modernity and modern times, we've seen that as religion shrinks, uh, the state increases, and then the state increases re- re- the, the sphere of religion and civil society shrinks. That's what we need to be aware of and concerned with, not. You know, Christians uh, and rumors about someone insulting the prophet. Ismail, you um, have taught me a lot just in this brief, <laughs> in this brief conversation, uh, in, in part because I have 
kind of considered religious freedom in, in two separate spheres, international religious freedom and the horrors that we see on the news of persecution against religious minorities, and then my personal concern about the status of religion in the U.S., and it sounds from what you've been sharing, and, and hopefully, Tom, you can elaborate, there's a lot more in common yes. in what we see in the Arab world and what we're seeing um, in these shocking, uh, yeah. violent, often, right. attacks against religious minorities and, and what we are facing in what oftentimes Pope Francis has called polite persecution. There's a, a common thread. Is that... Am I off? Have I understood a little bit of the root causes of of some of the kind of discord that we have in promoting the idea of, of religious freedom and pluralism and the benefits of it? Sure. Um, I would add to that that the root cause is a failure to understand the meaning of religious freedom. If you understand it, unless you're a terrorist or a totalitarian, hmm. you can intuitively see the value of it if you happen to be religious for your own religion, if you're not, for your society. And uh, I think it's very important, this is why we take the, the approach of uh, going to the root causes and working on them and not just responding to the mobs. We're informed by them, but we want to go to the, do the hard work of going to the root of the problem. Let me remind our listeners that this is, the, this is Conversations with Consequences of the Catholic Association. And we're speaking to two scholars from the Religious Freedom Institute. We're going to take a really fast break, and then we're going to come back and delve a little deeper. Welcome back, friends. You are listening to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm joined in studio today by my Good friend and colleague, our legal eagle at the Catholic Association, Andrea picciotti Bayer, And we have two distinguished guests with us, scholars from the Religious Freedom Institute. More than scholars. They are more than scholars. Well, I've found this conversation incredibly interesting. I yes, don't know so about you so far. I but have. Yes. I've learned so much. So on the last segment, to recap, we talked a little bit about the definition of religious freedom, both from a Christian and an Islamic perspective, and that was Extremely interesting. And now I want to point out something, and, and I hope we can talk about this um, coming up. Uh, I've been to a f several of your uh, conferences and your, your get-togethers that you have with the Religious Freedom Institute here in D.C., and I was struck by two things, uh, well, by several things, but two primarily. Number one, the ecum ecumenism of the gathering, the really astounding diversity of um, of the people that are interested in this question and the way that everybody's, so many different faith traditions are being brought in uh, to, at, to attack this problem of lack of religious freedom in whatever, whether it's American the, the, uh, or, or, or outside or in between countries. But the second thing that always, that, that made an, a big impression on me when I first heard it, and, I, and I've been mulling it over in my head ever since, is how you say that religious freedom, I'm quoting from your website, is an indispensable driver of democracy, social stability, civil liberty, economic prosperity, equality of women, and the defeat of violent extremism. And I find that I find that way that you connect the dots between what is a human right, religious freedom, something that we all we all wish to experience because we are all 
people with consciences that want to adhere to the truth. Uh, and then you connect the dots to things that are very um, materially beneficial uh, to any society. So Ms. maybe, Ms. Dr. Farr, you can tell us um, sure. how you connect those dots and how that works. Let me first, if I might, just uh, uh, do a, a brief uh, response to your point about our our. Ecumenism, I don't particularly like. I like yeah, diversity. Yeah, that's not a great word. Diversity. <laughs> when I said it, uh, first I couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it has negative connotations. The that's point right. is we bring people from all across the spectrum of America's religious uh, and, frankly, internationally, uh, across the spectrum of religious and political and ideological views. And I think one of the events you came to was our American Charter event where we rolled yes. out the American Charter of Freedom of Religion and Conscience at the National Archives. And that was a uh, an example of what you're talking about because not only did we have all kinds of religious people, Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and Jews and uh, you know, there's there's one of everything in America. We've got mm-hmm. a lot of those, but also deep political divisions. We had a former, uh, That's right. I remember a former uh, president of the ACLU, Nadine Strassen, who signed the American Charter, and on the other hot, uh, side, Robbie George, Professor Robert That's George. That's exactly right. I remember the, that. That was very the, impressive. So you know, this was a restatement of the founding principles of America. And we got people on all sides to mm-hmm. sign this. They don't agree about much. But they agreed about the preciousness of this right of free exercise of religion. On the issue of its impact, though, I mean, this is this has always fascinated me. And our predecessor, or our precursor organization, was at Georgetown University, where we did a lot of the scholarship. Uh, and probably why you think of us as scholars. <laughs> you and look we like are. scholars too. We are, but we want, we we left <laughs> Georgetown it's the glasses. in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> well. We want to take the scholarship and do something with it, and that's really what the Religious Freedom Mm -hmm. Institute is all about. So you read our mission statement or from it, and we're convinced uh, that the founders were right, that religious freedom has good impact on our society. They believed we would fail without it, without religion and public life. So we started with that, and then we spent uh, probably a decade at Georgetown and since then proving that they were right by doing empirical studies, by looking into the relationship between religious freedom and economic freedom, looking into the relationship between religious freedom and the rights of women and of higher literacy, particularly among women, looking into this fascinating business of where religious freedom exists, you have less religion-related violence and Mm -hmm. religion-related terrorism. Now, if that's true, Everybody ought to know more about that, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're working very hard to make sure that everyone knows about this. And for example, with our own State Department, which is where I got my start in this issue, uh, with the current ambassador at large for religious freedom, Sam Brownback, mm-hmm. who really does get this, yeah, and the that. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, gets it as well. Well, and Tom, just the last mm-hmm. two years have been incredible leadership by the administration in in furtherance of international religious freedom, right? With the ministerials, perhaps you can mention kind of the the great opening uh, sure. that, that the administration has, has shown to this important... When he became ambassador at large religious freedom, I guess, I don't know, two and a half years ago, uh, there was a, a different secretary of state at the time, Ambassador Brownback and his staff got the idea of this ministerial, and that's just a a name for bringing foreign ministers and their delegations from around the world to Washington. They happen from time to time. They're run by foreign ministers or secretaries of state in this case. 
And uh, the only one that I'm aware of, that Secretary Pompeo, he's the one that agreed to do it, by the mm -hmm. way. Brownback convinced Pompeo uh -huh. to do this. And he immediately said, yes, let's do it. So he had the first uh, ministerial in uh, last year, in the summer, and brought, I think, something like 80 or 85 delegations from around the world and about 400 leaders of civil society organizations around the world. They did it again this summer. And we reached uh, over 100 foreign delegations, most of them, many of them at least, including foreign ministers, came to D.C. for a three-day summit headed by Secretary Pompeo, addressed by Vice President Pence, and run by Ambassador Brownback, plus about 1,000 this time. I mean, the State Department was... was Bursting. <laughs> you just you could hardly turn around, and uh, it's the largest it's the largest gathering they've ever had on human rights at the State Department, which has there been there a long time. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is big mm -hmm. because it's building an international community for these fundamental rights. Where there is resistance, I mean, there's resistance here, but also around the world. Well, and it used to be, and you were a. Were you a foreign service officer? Mm -hmm. I sure was. It used to be that foreign service officers kind of had the mindset of just don't touch religion. Wherever you are, deal with the economics, deal with the pol politics, deal with issues of humanitarian concerns, and don't touch religion. And for anyone of faith, you know, religion touches upon everything. That's right. Uh, Madeleine Albright wrote a book after she left uh, the Ob after the Obama administration, or sorry, the Clinton administration. She was secretary under President Clinton. She wrote a book called The Mighty and the Almighty, and in it she said what you said. She said, we were trained as foreign service officers mm -hmm. to stay away from religion. It's too much trouble. It's too problematic. It's un-American. And of course, that's precisely exquisitely wrong mm -hmm. because the founders wanted religion, not just not religious violence, but religious motivations, which they believe was the basis of virtue. And mm -hmm. it, it's not terribly complicated. They believed without well, they, a virtuous... They rightly believed it. They rightly <laughs> believed that without a virtuous citizenry, we would fail as a republic. Remember, this was a great experiment in history, the American Revolution and the, and the constitutional settlement. So we're now rediscovering this. A lot of our empirical evidence, I said it a minute ago, is to prove that the founders were right, mm -hmm. uh, that it leads to economic prosperity. William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, said, come to Pennsylvania Colony. He was a Quaker. That's right. He said, come to Pennsylvania Colony. It's good for business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we, he hadn't read our studies <laughs> back in the uh, 1700s. But he intuitively understood this, and he was right. That's the real point. Pennsylvania colony was, was bursting with economic activity, in part because religious freedom was there. Tom, one of the things that I've appreciated about RFI, the Religious Freedom Institute, is that you're not just scholars, although you're strong scholars. You're not just wonks, although... <laughs> or a self <laughs> You know, people in Washington, sometimes we only talk to one another about politics and we forget right. the importance of whatever is being promoted for regular people. And, and I've always appreciated that among stakeholders in this conversation, you've reached out to church communities and that you've... Um, not only have representation in in your scholarship of a wide range of, of faith traditions, but you've gone to church leadership. And, and I understand that, especially in dealing with a lot of tense environments um, where, where religious 
a lack of religious freedom has led to violence. You've reached out to the religious leadership in those countries. And maybe, Ismail, you could speak a little bit about the importance of the faith communities in promoting religious freedom. If we, um, <clears throat> if we don't have religious communities on board with the notion of religious freedom, then um, it's never going to be achieved. It'll and, fail. And it's, yeah. Um, th there's a, a very serious um, mistaken approach of uh, promote, uh, uh, believing that the hope for religious freedom uh, for not uh, – let's talk about them in the Muslim world. For non-Muslim minorities in the religious uh, – excuse me, that for non-Muslim minorities in the Muslim world lies in um, secularism lies in, in the abandonment of or the hope that Muslims will abandon their faith. But in reality, uh, number one, that's probably not going to happen, so it's not realistic. But the second thing is that um, the resources are there in Islam. Uh, the foundation is there for um, a religious argument, a transcendent argument for uh, religious freedom and – or at least what I like to say, the substantive uh, principles of religious freedom. I say that uh, to to clarify that we're not talking. We don't we don't um, need the label religious freedom. What we need is what what is mm -hmm. the reality. That it, <laughs> the, yeah, the reality mm -hmm. that it, that that label um, describes. Um, and so, um, you know, it's the the, uh, the fruit will be born. Uh, much more fruit will be borne by dialogue and um, and persuasion of the Muslim, of the religious communities that persecution or limitation um, undue limitation of um, religion is um, is is contrary to what God intends. And so, for example, in the Quran, it says, um, "Oh, you who believe, respond uh, when uh, respond when God calls you to that which gives you life." So that which gives you life is what we understand to mean God's commandments on how we are supposed to um, believe, uh, uh, believe in him and worship him and also how we're supposed to treat our fellow human being. That's what, get, that's what um, uh, creates um, – it's, it's not a coincidence that when we follow God's commandments and how we're supposed to treat one another, for example, treating one another as if uh, – um, as we would like to be treated ourselves – which is one of the um, um, commandments that we are required to obey by the Prophet Muhammad, um, or giving charity, or um, 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 and all these things. Um, so when we follow those things, it's no coincidence that um, we prosper, that human beings flourish, and appealing to those uh, religious arguments is what is going to win the day, not in attempting to um, uh, to uh, push religion out of the public sphere. If I could just uh, add to that, um, what Ismail has said, we, we, here's an example of, of taking his ideas and translating them into action. We have begun for the last two or three years a, a private consultation, not the kinds of conferences that you were talking about, Gracie, but uh, places where we go for three or four days quietly with Muslim uh, stakeholders from the Middle East, which means religious and political figures, but primarily religious figures, to begin a conversation about this. I say, I emphasize it's not a conference because this is not going to be solved by, you know, a, a group of eggheads sitting around in panels <laughs> reading papers. We're having honest conversation about this, and 
we, we are going to the question of violence and, uh, you know, Islamist terrorism and the things that are probably on the, on the minds of Catholics as they listen to Ismail speak. We have very, very honest discussions about this, but we treat them as we want to be treated, to pick up on what mm -hmm. uh, Ismail was saying, with respect. We, we view, I view my fellow Muslims and, frankly, every human being that, uh, that, that doesn't give me a reason to believe otherwise, that they are truth seekers because they're human. Mm -hmm. And they it's built are into as our, a, our as DNA, a Catholic, right? Exactly, to seek God. That's exactly. a lovely way to if, say it. Truth seekers. Precisely so. And I mean, this is because I'm a Catholic that I believe this, and Ismail believes it because he's a Muslim. And you believe so, it because it's true. Because it's true. And so you can be honest. And we've, we've, we've had some rough uh, sessions where we really, really disagreed with each other. But what we've done, we've now had two of these several-day conferences, is begin to develop what I would call develop community, mm -hmm. which isn't a group of people that believe in that none of this matters or that, you know, this is syncretism or that we can have the Abrahamic religions. Neither one of us particularly like that <laughs> because it's, it's just an idea that, you know, well, we're, we really are all the same. Yeah. We're not the same. We have deep differences. But it's because of that, not in spite of that, that we can talk about religious freedom. So our ultimate goal is to find out whether religious freedom, as we mean it, translate it if you like. I don't care how you translate it, but the principles, as Ismail says, are very important. And I'm, I'm very, very um, optimistic. I don't want to say confident. That sounds arrogant. But I'm optimistic that this process we began a few years ago is now beginning to bear fruit. And what's unique about what we're doing is that we're not um, – we're not uh, – this is not an attempt to persuade non-Muslims that Islam is a great religion. Or so. we, we don't actually do a lot of that. Uh, we don't uh, – what, what we do is talk to Muslims and persuade Muslims that Islam is a great religion, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, in the sense that we persuade them that we're, we're better than this, you know. Yeah. And um, so we have a uh, – our next conference is uh, coming up in um, uh, Sarajevo. Um, we're going to bring together um, some of the – finest and most influential minds in the Muslim world. And we're not, again, we're not going to the secular or religious people. We're going to um, the very, very firm and, um, uh, you know, in their uh, faith. And these are the ones, wh why are we going to them? Because w these are the ones that we need to have this conversation mm -hmm. with, you know, and these are the ones who have Huge influence, you know, uh, hundreds, um, you know, hundreds of people going to their mosques, millions, literally millions, following them on social media. These are the people that we need to mm. um, persuade. We don't want to get a bunch of people together who are all who are all already on the, the same page, um, or who are just going to say what they think we want them to say. You know, I was really struck in some of uh, our conversation talking about um, the history, especially in the U.S in support and in advancing religious freedom. And I wonder if the rise of secularism and the cabining of religious expression in the last decades or so has changed some of that. And if perhaps you guys, are, in addition to working abroad, are working domestically. I don't know how you do it. You're like, try locating. <laughs> um, but, but maybe, Tom or Ishmael, you can speak a little bit about the need to teach about the importance of faith and religious freedom here in the U.S.? 
Well, the, the way we're able to do it all is because the, the approach is the same for everybody. The, the beginning is that religious freedom is for everybody. It's not just for Americans. I'm convinced that the founders meant that, although a lot of people would argue with me they were doing something else. So the way we do it in America is to try to do what we're doing in a different way with the, with the Middle Eastern Muslims in the, what we just discussed. We're trying to give fact-based arguments about the value of religious freedom, and we're doing it through something called the Center for Religious Freedom Education and our North American Action Team. Those are the two parts of the RFI, the Religious Freedom Institute, that are doing this. The Center for Religious Freedom Education is developing curricula, which is now being piloted curricula are now being piloted in high schools around the country. Fabulous. At this point, wow. at this point mainly either Catholic or uh, Catholic-oriented uh, classical schools. But we call, we have a couple of curricula. One is based on this American charter, which we, we're developing for public schools, but the one we're doing now is called America's First Freedom Curriculum. And just the title of it tells you where we're going with this. It's for everybody. It is, it's free exercise equality free exercise equality. That's that's our phrase for it. So we're getting that in the high schools. We're offering training for high school teachers and so forth. We're also doing this at the university level. So uh, I taught at Georgetown for many years. We have my, my uh, approaches that we use, we offer to colleges. My colleague Tim Shaw taught there as well. We have his courses. And we're developing memoranda of understandings, MOU, with various colleges. We have one with Baylor, which is the largest and oldest mm -hmm. Baptist institution. We have one with Catholic University. We're developing one with Biola in Los Angeles and many, many others where we offer not only syllabuses or syllabi, if you're a, an egghead. You are. But, <laughs> no, I'm not. And uh, but we also offer training for professors and we offer the professors themselves. So, Get it back into the schools. That's one of the many things we're doing. I love that. I love that because I, I have children of some young adult children and younger children, and there is a complete lack of understanding of the importance of religious liberty. When you, when you, um, when you think about promoting religious freedom in the United States, how do you think about uh, secularists? Um, mm. Liberals and secularists have, in a sense, their own religion, right? It has... I mean, it's... Um... No, they don't. I'm glad you said <laughs> It should that. not be protected. Secularism, okay, please no, correct no, me. No. <laughs> I'll give you the quick answer to that. Religious freedom protects secularists in the sense that it does not... It's that immunity from coercion. Nobody can be coerced to believe that which their conscience will not allow them to believe. And that includes non-believers. But beyond that, the American system protects the secularists not with the free exercise of religion. That renders the meaning of religion nonsense, in mm -hmm. my opinion. They get to say whatever free they want by free association, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. We have a particular thing called religion in yeah. this country, and we protect that. The founders wanted that, but not just Christianity. I have to say it again, all religions equally. So it's very important. We're not talking about anti-secularists or anti-atheists. Frankly, I believe that at the end of the day, if, if our crowd got back involved in the free exercise of religion, it would benefit this country and therefore it would benefit everybody. So you don't, you don't, uh, you don't agree with people who say that environmentalism is a kind of religion and it has, or other kinds of 
if well, it's got attributes, well, but it it's not religion. <laughs> well, right. I sometimes I think when I try There's to fervor, explain the, I, I the know paper a lot straw, of, I know a lot of secular, very intensely secular people, and I try to explain to them. And now I know I'm wrong, but I can explain to them. I, I try. I say I explain to them. You know, you feel very strongly. You have your conscience very invested in certain things. Sure. Maybe it's paper straws. I get that. I get that. But that's protected on. That's protected in our system. Without You're, without having to but, go into the but religious. But if you say already. that's religion, then what isn't religion? Yeah. Oh no, I'm. We, I'm we with once you. had this position presented in one of our events at Georgetown with Michael McConnell and Noah Feldman, uh, Stanford and Harvard Law. See, I'm not so, I'm not so off. <laughs> and, that's right. And Noah Feldman said, I believe environmentalism is a religion. It has a and liturgy. And Stanford won. And sta- well, in my view, it does. It, it won. <laughs> but uh, this is a big debate. I just don't like it because if you say environmentalism, what, what, philosophy what is religion, right. side straddle hops are Vegetarianism. religion. Yeah. Vegetarianism. Vegetarian. Well, and let me just clarify. You get to do all that, but not under the banner of religious freedom. I was having a conversation recently with someone who said, well, you know, we don't want to protect the Satanists. And I don't think anyone who has been defending religious freedom has recognized Satanism either as a religion, even though it has many attributes that look like a religion, at least domestically. Some courts have specifically addressed this and said that it's not a religion because it— doesn't actually make any um, claims uh, about the, the the deeper meanings of life and the transcendent. So the courts have a very interesting, you know, being an attorney, the courts have a very interesting way of analyzing what's a religion and what's not. But at the same time, and there is a, a sense, and I mean there's a rhetorical sense where you can say, well, an atheist um, uh, asserts something on his on the basis of the faith that there is no, um, you know, that there is no God, for example, because you can't prove you know that that's not something that you can prove. It's something that you believe because that's, um, you know, that's your belief. And well, so we can bring it back to what Tom right. had said early on: is that freedom of religion does have some boundaries. That the state can put some boundaries, especially when there are issues of order and the safety of others mm-hmm. and anything that's going yeah. to kind of be a challenge. And and maybe that might be an opportunity to kind of close it out. How do we make sure that this doesn't, it isn't, you know, a, a horse running without a rider? How do we make sure that in not only in protecting the right of the human to seek truth and to find a personal relationship with God, you don't use religious freedom as an excuse to harm? Because that's that's the, the argument that's being presented as an opposition. That's what the other side says, right? Yeah. Well, this is a democracy, which is uh, supposed to be decided by the people, not by the courts, which is why we are not involved. We, we do amicus briefs, but we are not litigators. We're focusing on the culture and on the founders. And so the answer to the question, in my view, is that all of us is free exercise equality. So we have a, a right, and I would argue a duty, to be citizens of this country. Take what you learn in your conscience and in your house of worship and bring it into our culture. Make arguments about public policy. Make arguments about to your friends in your profession uh, about what our laws and public policies ought to be. You can't argue for violence. You cannot argue to to, uh, or to put it at disadvantage. Silence. That's right. To, to put women at a disadvantage. We do have laws and norms in our and, – and you can't argue for a monopoly. You can't argue that we have to pass a law that says everybody get, has to come to our church. That, by the way, has been tried. It's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> it is a very bad idea. 
Here's the answer. Exercise your religion. Mm -hmm. Exercise your religion. It doesn't matter what your religion is. Within the limits established by our culture and our, our traditions, don't go into a fetal position. Don't just go to your mass or your synagogue, but come into but the live. public square and mm -hmm. make arguments mm -hmm. about who we ought to be as a country. Well, that is, those are words to close on because I can't imagine better advice for our listeners. Thank you so much. Tom Farr and Ismail Royer for joining us today for a fascinating conversation. I wish we could talk for two more hours. Can you tell us, tell our listeners, please, how they can learn more about the RFI? Go to religiousfreedominstitute.org. Is or, that right? Or RFI.org. Now we just bought that domain. So. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, okay. That's easier. RFI.org. RFI.org, yeah. religiousfreedom.org. Read about our action teams and what we're doing. Well, you're doing fabulous work. Thank you again for joining us. It was us. great. Thank what you guys for coming. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily written in audio on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation the Lord Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. It's a conversation that Jesus introduces with perhaps the most haunting question in the whole gospel. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The question seems to be more than rhetorical. She's acid, it seems, because he's not convinced that when he comes, he's going to find the type of faith he wants to see. The test of faith, he indicates by the parable of the persistent widow, is whether when he comes, he'll find us persevering in prayer. Prayer, after all, is faith in action. If Jesus is going to find us faithful, he's going to find us praying, obviously not necessarily on our knees, but seeking to unite our whole day and life, our mind, heart, soul, and strength to God. If he doesn't find us praying and living in conscious communion with him, however, it's likely he's not going to find us living by faith. And so through the gospel parable, Jesus wants to teach us about the necessity of praying always without growing weary. He wants to help us to learn how to cry out to God day and night. He wants to train us to live that way so that no matter what time he comes, we'll be united to the Lord in a prayer, not merely of our lips, but of our lives. So Jesus asked the haunting question, because he knows many do not pray like the importune woman. Many Catholics don't persevere in prayer. We're content on praying a little, saying a Hail Mary or two at the beginning of the day or at the end. Others would like to pray more, but they think they don't have the time because they're prioritizing so many other things in life to a life-changing dialogue with God. Others, because of a bad experience, stop praying altogether as an ordinary activity of life, only turning to God in times of crisis. This Sunday, Jesus will speak to all of us about the persevering faith he wishes to find in our prayer, hoping to open us up to receive his graces precisely so that we can pray in that way. But we have to ask a prior question. Why does Jesus want us to pray with the type of heroic perseverance he describes? 
It's not that he wants to hog all our attention. It's not that he wants us to ask for something 70 times, seven times is a pointless exercise, especially given that God already knows what we need before we ask. The reason is because we live as we pray. In order to help us to learn how to persevere faithfully in life, he wants us to learn first to persevere faithfully in prayer. We'll see in this Sunday's reading that when Moses' arms were lifted in prayer, the Israelites had the upper hand against the Amalekites. But when his hands fell because of fatigue, the Amalekites prevailed. Likewise, when we persevere in prayer, then we open ourselves to receive God's strength to confront and overcome the challenges we face each day. When our hearts, however, grow weary and our hands fall, when we either try to do things on our own or lose heart and give up the good fight of faith altogether, that's when we fall. To persevere faithfully in life, we must learn how to persevere faithfully in prayer. Jesus tells us in the Gospel this Sunday, He who endures to the end will be saved. Life is a marathon, but one in which God wants to run alongside of us, helping and sustaining us along the way. Prayer is the consequential conversation we have along that marathon. Just like a marathon runner, if we're ever going to finish the race to the heavenly Jerusalem, we have to train. We can't go from barely praying to praying always overnight. We need to make a commitment in spirit, but then train our weak flesh. We must grow in prayer. That begins with making the commitment to set aside some fixed time for a one-on-one -on -one appointment with the Lord each day, in which we spend time quietly listening to him, speaking to us, as we respond to him with faith. The key is to make that appointment and treasure it. It's the most important appointment of our day. The Mass is the great persevering prayer of the Church. It began during the Last Supper, continued on Good Friday, and has continued all the way to the present day. It's one continuous sacrifice, as the Third Eucharistic Prayer has it, from the rising of the sun to its setting. But it's important that we persevere in praying the Mass and living a Eucharistic life. We should hope that the vast majority of times we come to Mass, it won't be a feat of perseverance, but rather a joy in the highlight of our day and week. But on those occasions in which we're impatient at Mass, it's an opportunity for us to learn how to persevere in prayer and life. So when the Son of Man comes, as Jesus asked, will he find faith on earth? This Sunday is a grace-filled opportunity for us to recognize that God will give us all the help we need to respond to him. He will give us the grace to increase our prayer, to persevere in our prayerful union with him so that we may persevere in the good fight against evil and for him. We ask the Lord for his help to pray with living faith so that when he comes on Sunday, he, must, he may find us full of faith, ready to persevere in prayerful union with him through the valleys and mountains of life all the way until, God willing, we join the eternally persevering prayer of the church triumphant. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry, to another fascinating homily. Unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Gracie Christie, joined today by my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and two very interesting guests from the Religious Freedom Institute, Tom Farr and Ismael Royer. Gracie, I think that this was an incredibly fascinating and engaging conversation. I'm so happy about it. I've been really trying to convince and explain, especially to good, coherent Catholics, the importance of religious freedom, uh, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And, and it struck to me, um, 
I was reading recently uh, one of the new books out by George Weigel, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, and he highlights a quote from uh, Pope Benedict. And, it, and he, Pope Benedict said, God wishes to be adored by people who are free. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. Well, and you know, um, and I think I, I would like to repeat what uh, Tom Farr said at the end of uh, the segment is the best way to defend our religious freedom is to go out and exercise it. Absolutely. (laughs) Amen, sister. (laughs) Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us this week. If you've been listening on the radio, um, you've been listening on the the Guadalupe Radio Network at 11 a.m. on Fridays. Uh, If not, you've been listening to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast of our show wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to thecatholicassociation.org to subscribe for free and also to sign up for our TCA Clips daily email. Tell your friends about us and we'll see you next week. Bye.